a great weekend ahead, Africa. This is VOA News via remote. I'm Marissa Melton. A stark warning came today from the U.S. State Department for Russian leaders and military commanders conducting the invasion of Ukraine. If you take part in war crimes, we will do everything to hold you accountable. We have details from VOA's chief national correspondent, Steve Herman. Some of the Russian military attacks on civilian locations in Ukraine, such as hospitals, may constitute war crimes. And there will be investigations, according to U.S. officials. State Department spokesman Ned Price says these urban bombardments demonstrate Russian President Vladimir Putin's plan to quickly defeat Ukraine has failed. So he's now turning to a strategy of laying waste to population centers to try to break the will of the people of Ukraine, something he will not be able to do. The State Department and many international organizations are calling for Russia not to hinder civilians from evacuating beleaguered areas in Ukraine. Steve Herman, VOA News, Washington. Ukraine's President Zelensky on Thursday said around 100,000 people had evacuated the country's cities in two days. He also accused Russian forces of targeting a humanitarian corridor in the city of Mariupol. Zelensky said he decided to send a convoy of trucks into the besieged port city with food, water, and medicine. But he said in a video statement that the Russians launched a tank attack, quote, exactly where this corridor was supposed to be. He described the attack as outright terror. The Ukrainian leader said that of the around 100,000 people who had been able to leave other Ukrainian cities via humanitarian corridors over the past two days, some 40,000 had fled on Thursday alone. You can keep up on all the news from Ukraine at our website, voanews.com. This is VOA News. The U.N. Security Council will meet to discuss Russian claims of U.S. labs in Ukraine. AP's Mike Gracia has that story. The United Nations Security Council will meet Friday at Russia's request to discuss Moscow's claims of the United States conducting military biological activities in Ukraine. Council diplomats, speaking on condition of anonymity, confirmed the meeting will convene at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. U.S. officials dismissed the Russian claims out of hand on Wednesday. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby. The Russian accusations uh, are absurd. They're laughable. And... uh, You know, in the words of my Irish Catholic grandfather, a bunch of malarkey. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki called the Russian claim preposterous. The White House has suggested that Russia might seek to create a pretense for further escalating its two-week-old invasion of Ukraine. I'm Mike Gracia. More than a month after the former leader of Islamic State blew himself up during a raid by U.S. Special Forces in northwestern Syria... The terror group says a new leader is in place. A more than 12-minute-long audio recording posted to social media Thursday introduced the new IS chief as Abu al-Hassan al-Hashimi al-Karashi. The recording said he's been leading the group since shortly after the death of his predecessor. The statement, delivered by the terror group's newly appointed spokesman, also confirmed the death of the previous spokesman, Abu Hamza al-Karashi, This had not been previously reported. The audio statement says the new leader was selected for the role by his predecessor. He's now the third person to lead the terror group since it began calling itself Islamic State.
U.S. President Joe Biden said Thursday he intends to name Colombia a major non-NATO ally. It's a particularly timely announcement for a South American nation seen as a bulwark against Venezuela, a Russian ally and a foe of the United States. Biden said Thursday that the designation is a recognition of the unique and close relationship between Colombia and the United States. He also said the U.S. will donate an additional 2 million COVID-19 vaccine doses to Colombia. Colombia shares a long border with Venezuela and is home to some 1.8 million Venezuelan refugees. And a new report on the U.S. Census shows black, Hispanic, and American Indian residents went uncounted at higher rates in the 2020 census than in the 2010 count. The U.S. Census Bureau released that report on Thursday. Overall, the 2020 census missed an unexpectedly small percentage of the total U.S. population, giving the unprecedented challenges it faced, including the pandemic. Marissa Melton, VOA News. Today is Friday, March 11th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinenua for in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the U.S. accuses Russia of deliberately targeting Ukrainian civilians as war rages near Kyiv. Russian forces are at the very least operating with reckless disregard for the safety of civilians as Russian units launch artillery and airstrikes into urban areas. Ukraine dominates a two-day EU summit where leaders are discussing ways to cut their energy ties with Russia. The European Union is not following the United States in immediately banning imports of Russian oil and gas. And Burmese forces intensify airstrikes, particularly in the ethnic regions of Myanmar. We'll have those stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. U.S. Director of National Intelligence Avery Haines said on Thursday that Russian forces are operating with, quote, reckless disregard, unquote, for civilians as they face stronger than expected resistance in Ukraine. She told the Senate Intelligence Committee's annual hearing on worldwide threats to U.S. security that intelligence community is engaged in documenting potential war crimes and holding Russia and Russian actors accountable for their actions. Russian forces are at the very least operating with reckless disregard for the safety of civilians as Russian units launch artillery and airstrikes into urban areas. Nevertheless, the invasion has proceeded consistent with the plan we assess the Russian military would follow. Only they are facing significantly more resistance from heroic Ukrainians than they expected and encountering serious military shortcomings. Moreover, we assess Moscow underestimated the strength of Ukraine's resistance and the degree of internal military challenges we are observing in the Russian military, which include an ill-constructed plan, morale issues, and considerable logistical challenges. And we assess Putin feels aggrieved the West does not give him proper deference and perceives this is a war he cannot afford to lose. But what he might be willing to accept as a victory may change over time, given the significant costs he is incurring. I want to be absolutely clear that we do not believe that Ukraine is pursuing biological or nuclear weapons, that we've seen no evidence of that. And frankly, this influence campaign is completely consistent with long-standing Russian efforts to accuse the United States of sponsoring bio-weapons work in former Soviet Union. So this is a classic move by the Russians. That's U.S. Director of National Intelligence, Avery Haines. Ukraine dominated a two-day European Union summit outside Paris, where leaders are discussing ways to cut their energy ties with Russia 
shore up their defense and consider Kiev's membership application. For VOA, Lisa Bryant has more from the French capital. The European Union is not following the United States in immediately banning imports of Russian oil and gas. But EU leaders meeting at Versailles outside Paris are looking to phase out the bloc's energy reliance on Moscow as quickly as possible as part of a broader autonomy drive, including in European defense. Ahead of the summit, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte discussed the challenges. I would not plead to cut off uh, our supply of oil and gas today from Russia. It's not possible because we need the supply uh, and that's the uncomfortable truth. But we can do more to get the green agenda going, to decarbonize our economies, also making use of all the reforms uh, in uh, the European uh, green package uh, as we have agreed earlier. The European Commission, the EU's executive arm, has outlined a mix of measures in this direction that include cutting gas imports from Russia by two-thirds this year. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, Russia has instrumentalized energy over the last past month, if not to say years, to put pressure not only on Ukraine, but also on the European Union. And we are now really determined to get out of the dependency of Russian gas. Sébastien Maillard of the Jacques Delors Institute, a Paris-based research group, says it's also about European principles. We are every day purchasing gas, Russian gas and Russian oil, and purchasing the war uh, against Ukraine. The EU's autonomy push could be a boon for renewable energy, but some fear the opposite, at least in the short term, that Europe could delay meeting ambitious climate goals by relying more on polluting energies like coal. That could be the case of Germany or Poland, for example, which are highly dependent on Russian oil and gas. Notre agriculture, notre industrie, Cushioning the fallout of sanctions against Russia will also be key. European consumers and businesses will be paying higher heating and other energy costs, something French President Emmanuel Macron warned his nation about last week. Analyst Martin Cassi of the German Marshall Fund says Europe must take robust measures to reduce the fallout. If the EU response is not strong enough, this will affect our ability to vote new sanctions in the coming weeks and months. EU leaders will also examine applications by Ukraine as well as Georgia and Moldova to join the 27-member bloc, a process that even fast-tracked could take years. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. Ukrainian and Russian foreign ministers met at a Turkish Mediterranean Sea resort but failed to end the fighting in Ukraine with mutual recriminations. Both ministers indicate the diplomatic door remains open. Dorian Jones reports from Istanbul. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kulaba's meeting with Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov ended with little apparent progress. Speaking at a news conference after the meeting, Kulaba criticized what he called Russia's lack of sincerity. Kulaba said, we cannot stop the war if the country that started the aggression has no desire to do so. We are ready for diplomacy, but ready to defend ourselves. At his news conference, Lavrov countered, accusing Ukraine of not being serious in seeking a diplomatic solution. 
In a possible gesture to Kiev, however, Lavrov said Russian President Vladimir Putin could be ready to hold a summit with his Ukrainian counterpart, Volodymyr Zelensky. Since the start of the Russian-Ukrainian tensions, Zelensky has called for direct talks with Putin. Lavrov also warned the West it was playing a dangerous game arming Ukraine with sophisticated weapons, including surface-to-air missiles. He said, therefore the threat is set to last for years. There will be risk for civil aviation and not only in the Ukrainian sky. They can spread across Europe. The Ukrainian foreign minister said he received no response to proposals to help mitigate the humanitarian crisis, including a 24-hour ceasefire and the opening of a corridor to allow hundreds of thousands of civilians to escape the besieged city of Maripol. In addition, Lavrov rejected Kiev's accusations that Russian forces attacked a maternity hospital in Maripol, claiming Ukrainian forces had taken it over and that there were no patients using the building. Lavrov said, about the maternity hospital, this is not the first time we have seen pathetic cries about the so-called atrocities committed by the Russian armed forces. Moscow is facing international condemnation over the hospital attack. Given the apparent lack of progress, it remains unclear whether the Ukrainian and Russian foreign ministers agree to meet again. The Turkish foreign minister, Mevlo Cavusoglu, who hosted Thursday's talks, would not comment on future gatherings, other than to say Thursday's meeting was held in a civil fashion. Ankara, which has good ties with Kiev and Moscow, has sought a mediating role since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine last month. Economist Sezin Une of the Turkish news portal Politikyol says Ankara sees a conflict as an opportunity. Ukraine is an important strategic ground for Turkey. Now uh, Turkey is using its own strategic junctures to expand its power. Uh, so it's Turkey's new power play as it aspires to become a bigger player in the world stage. But given the lack of progress Thursday, it remains unclear if Ankara has a further diplomatic role to play. Dorian Jones of VOA News, Istanbul. Senegalese President and Chair of the African Union, Makassar, has asked Russian President Vladimir Putin to seek a lasting ceasefire in Ukraine. Sal's talk with Putin comes just a week after Senegal abstained from a UN vote to condemn the Russian invasion. As Anike Hamashlag reports from Dakar, African nations have interest in seeing an end to the war, but also in not upsetting Putin. Saul's request as chairman of the African Union Wednesday was a contrast to his actions as Senegalese president a week prior when Senegal joined 16 other African nations in abstaining from a UN vote to condemn the Russian invasion. Senegal is considered a beacon of democracy in West Africa, so the move came as a surprise to many. Joseph Siegel is the director of research for the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. He says the vote reflected Senegal's posture of non-alignment, similar to many other African countries over the years. It isn't a vote of support for Russia, he says, but a vote for trying to maintain neutrality. Russia has a plethora of business dealings throughout the African continent. Senegal, for example, signed a $300 million deal with Russian oil company Luke Oil just last year. The company also has operations in Cameroon, Egypt, Ghana, and Nigeria. Russian mining companies are also active throughout Africa, from extracting diamonds in Angola to aluminum in Guinea and uranium in Namibia.
Most notably, Moscow is Africa's leading supplier of weapons. Since 2015, it signed military agreements with more than 20 African countries. Furthermore, private Russian military companies with close ties to the Kremlin have gained an increasingly strong foothold in African countries such as Mali and the Central African Republic. So, while it may be in the best interest of many African countries to avoid tension with the Kremlin, leaders are beginning to feel the ripple effect of the war. Abdulhaman Cham is the head of the political science department at Dakar's University of Sherhanta Diop. He says Russia is a country that exports a lot of products, like gas and raw materials such as wheat, and that that can have an economic impact, especially with regards to trade. Luckily, the African Union does have some sway, Cham says. He says international relations are not only decided by major world powers. The African Union is still a regional institution that can be considered an influential voice. Russia also needs Africa, he added, and it's in their best interest to listen to the African Union. In a statement about the call, the Kremlin referred to the invasion as a special military operation to protect Donbass and did not mention Saul's request for a ceasefire. Instead, it stated that Russia was asked to safely evacuate foreign citizens and said both leaders had reaffirmed their commitment to further develop Russia-African relations. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. Russia's harsh new media laws that bans independent reporting of its invasion of Ukraine has had a chilling effect on the operations of media outfits. It has also placed more hurdles on the path of journalists in their quest to cover the conflict, especially for Russian citizens. Already, the New York Times and other outlets have temporarily recalled their reporters from Russia. For more on how the media is reporting the war in the face of Moscow's clampdown, I spoke with Babak Bahador, an associate research professor at School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. The media in the West are obviously engaging in quite comprehensive coverage. They have reporters you know, all throughout Ukraine. Uh, many are taking a lot of risk being in war zones, being close to the action. And the West is getting quite comprehensive coverage, of course. One could argue that some of the partially bias in favor of the Ukrainian side, and the Ukrainians and their goals align much more with Western interests and their desire for a more democratic, open society is much more aligned with Western values. So I think uh, the coverage is probably somewhat biased, but generally it appears to be quite accurate and very detailed. Russia has cracked down on independent media and other forms of information. Why do you think this is, and what benefits would that be for the Kremlin? I think they're trying to make sure that the population in Russia is loyal, adherent, and by limiting the range of voices and views, especially dissenting voices and views, they're hoping that they will prevent further dissension on the, and the information is leading to dissension in challenges to political power. How can the media overcome this? It makes it more challenging, certainly, because if you're going to potentially go to jail for 15 years, you're going to be very careful uh, what you say. So to some degree, Russia might be successful in limiting various critical voices within its country, what, what its population has access to. However, in the long term, if you've seen in places like the Soviet Union during the Afghan war, if things are not going well, that information is going to creep back. It's going to come back in information about body bags coming back when people's children are dying, the, voice, the news is going to get out there. It's going to be hard to hide that. If you make claims that it's successful, yet people's daily lives are not successful, they're seeing the difficulties in their own lives with access to less resources, those things are harder to hide. And if people see a discrepancy between their own lives and what the state says, it's going to lead to a lack of trust and increasing skepticism about what the state says. 
The Russian government also needs the media to present its own point of view or prevent its own information by limiting the access the media has. Is that not also, in some ways, limiting its own ability to put its own views across? They're only going after more critical voices. So if you spread fake news or false information as the way they interpret it, then you're potentially being prosecuted. But their own state channels, which are promoting the pro-Russian view on the conflict, they're not being sanctioned. So it's uh, really sanctioning those voices that they don't want to hear. Is there a possibility that this might change after this war? Or has everyone learned a quote-unquote bitter lesson and some of these correspondents and some of this independent media might not go back to Moscow? For the most part, in the short term, most of them have suspended their operations in Russia out of concern for the safety of own journalists. But some are already looking at covering it maybe in more careful ways. The BBC initially announced, for example, that they were suspending operations. And then a few days later, they decided that they will cover within Russia. But different news outlets are going to remain there, are going to be much more cautious. They're not going to disclose the name of their reporters, possibly the name of their sources. So they're going to still cover Russia, but a lot of it will be from outside Russia. And the kind that takes place within Russia will be much more uh, careful to not get people in trouble, obviously. That's Babak Bahado, an associate research professor at School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University, speaking with me from Washington. In other news, U.S. federal officials are extending the requirements for masks on planes and public transportation through mid-April while taking steps that could lead to lifting the rule. The mask mandate was scheduled to expire March 18th, but the Transportation Security Administration said Thursday it will extend the requirements through April 18th. TSA said the extra month will give the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention time to develop new, more targeted policies that will consider the number of cases of COVID-19 nationally and in local communities and the risk of new variants. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua in Washington. Conflict persists in Myanmar as Burmese forces have intensified airstrikes, particularly in the ethnic regions of the country. One of the hardest hit regions is Kaya State, where mountainous terrain and checkpoints have slowed aid relief to internally displaced persons, or IDPs. For VOA, Steve Sanford has this story from Chiang Mai in Thailand. In eastern Myanmar's Kaya State, the Burmese army's indiscriminate use of airstrikes has continued unabated. On March 7, aid groups estimated there were nearly 200,000 internally displaced persons in Kaya State since the coup, where fighting continues between the Burmese military and anti-coup armed groups. On the Thai-Myanmar border, relief continues to be delivered to refugees who have managed to cross over to Thailand. However, since the Myanmar army identifies all opposition groups as terrorists, aid groups risk being labeled criminals for offering them assistance. Kaya refugees who have resettled in Thailand raise support for extended family members who are fleeing violence in Myanmar. Kaya volunteer Na Dadar continues to get daily updates from her relatives still on the run and in need of emergency supplies. From what I know, they have to keep going. There's no place for them to camp. They can't sleep knowing that a bomb or a plane could be above them at any minute. A 
As Myanmar's conflict persists, civilians are asking for outside support to bring an end to the crisis. Steve Sanford for VOA News, Chiang Mai, Thailand. Aid groups say the number of people displaced by conflict in Burkina Faso in January spiked to 160,000, bringing the total displaced in the country to 1.7 million. The aid groups worry the crisis stemming from Russia's invasion of Ukraine will draw much-needed humanitarian funding away from Africa's Sahel region. Her Wilkins reports from neighboring Ivory Coast. The spike in displacements comes amid a six-year conflict with armed groups linked to Islamic State and Al-Qaeda and a military coup on the 23rd of January, which saw a military junta come to power in the West African country. Since January 2019, non-profits say the displaced population in Burkina Faso has grown by 2,000%, with over 1.7 million people now uprooted. Tom Perret-Costa is spokesperson for the Norwegian Refugee Council, NRC, in West and Central Africa. There are increasing numbers of attacks, uh, the destruction of crops, the theft of livestock, uh, which are preventing families to access their fields uh, and their food stocks. So faced with the inability to feed their families, people have had to flee and move towards towns. Pere Costa added that some donors have said they might reduce aid funding for Burkina Faso as money is diverted to the crisis in Ukraine. Some donors have already indicated that they would proceed to a 70% cut of our funding to support operations in Ukraine. And we are very concerned that this will become a trend. Burkina Faso's military junta, led by President Paul-Henri Damiba, has said it hopes to restore security to the country and allow people displaced by the conflict to return home. Asked if security has improved for Burkina Faso since the start of 2022, Paul Melly, an analyst with London-based think tank Chatham House, sounded cautiously optimistic. The security situation in Burkina Faso has begun to improve in some respects. We've seen uh, some significant successes uh, for the armed forces, but it's still too early to say whether the military's uh, commitment to improved, sustained success in uh, tackling jihadist violence, whether we're really seeing results in that respect. He points out that many of the recent successes for the military resulted from closer cooperation with French forces, which was instigated by ousted President Roque Cabore. Alexandre Lamarche is Senior Advocate for West and Central Africa at Refugees International, a Washington-based non-profit. Russia is one of the leading grain exporters in the world. As the international community cuts economic ties with Russia, we can expect a global shortage. In sub-Saharan Africa, this shortage will leave additional people in need of emergency food assistance, many of which may not have otherwise required aid. She says the crisis in Ukraine will have devastating effects on crises across sub-Saharan Africa not just in Burkina Faso. She added that if donor attention is singularly focused on Ukraine in the coming weeks, it may be too late to mitigate the consequences of widespread food insecurity. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Ivory Coast. This is Science in a Minute.
explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton had hoped to be the first to cross Antarctica on land. Shackleton led his team aboard a ship called Endurance that would sail to Antarctica via the Wendell Sea. After leaving South Georgia Island in December 1914, Shackleton's Endurance quickly ran into heavy pack ice. The ice would eventually trap, crush, and sink the ship nearly a year after beginning its trip. It was reported that all members of Shackleton's Endurance crew survived. 106 years after the sinking of the Endurance, the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust has announced that its Endurance 22 expedition has located the ship. According to a press release, Endurance was found within four miles south of the position that had been recorded by the ship's captain, Frank Worsley, in 1915. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 2105 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. Hello, I'm Carol Castiel. Next up, the status of talks in Vienna on a nuclear deal with Iran. President Joe Biden chose to revive negotiations over the 2015 deal, which former President Donald Trump abandoned. Experts examined last-minute demands from Russia and the possibility of lifting sanctions on Iran should the West ban imports of Russian oil in response to the war in Ukraine. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at VONews.com. Until next time, I am Chinedorfer in Washington, wishing you a great day. Washington, bam, bam, boom, zip.